What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Tom Tiemann is the co-founder and CEO of Portis. In this conversation, we talked about the usability issues in the cryptocurrency industry, how those issues could potentially be fixed, what Portis does, and why it is so essential to gaining user adoption across crypto. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I'm here with Tom. My voice a little scratchy. I wish I could say it's because I'm cool, but it's because Blockchain Week has uh, been uh, wearing its toll. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming as, uh, as you're here in New York. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For sure. All right. Uh, for those that don't know, you live in uh, Israel, uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, maybe give us a little uh, update on uh, your background or an overview. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I was uh, an officer in the Intelligence Corps after I finished my service. I did my bachelor's in computer science in Tel Aviv University and started working in a cybersecurity company called uh, Watchdogs. And I was there for seven years. It's where I met my co-founder, Itai. He was also in the Intelligence Corps in the technological unit. And How come every Israeli went to the <laughs> Intelligence Unit? Everybody. <laughs> well, the guys in this space usually you see a correlation. And... Um, so we worked together for three years. I've been into blockchain since 2013. I remember reading the Ethereum white paper, getting really excited about the possibilities. I got into Bitcoin before that. And in 2017, there was a Facebook hackathon in Tel Aviv. So Itai and I built a decentralized application. Uh, we built an app called Attender. It was basically for event organizers. We used to do technical meetups and people would click attend but not show up. So we decided that an event organizer can create a deposit box People place a little bit of deposit, show they're serious. If they show up, they get it back. Otherwise, it goes to a charity defined in advance in the contract. People loved it. We won first place. Facebook flew us out to the global hackathon in Palo Alto. But people who approached us saying, hey, we want to use this application, it was impossible, basically. Like, if you're a technical person, it's hard. And if you're a non-technical person, it's not going to happen. At the time, MetaMask was the only option. So... You know, the first thing you got to do is give your peop- give the person a list of instructions on how to use it. And, <laughs> you know, you, you don't get a list of instructions when you download Instagram or Uber. It just works. It's easy. And, yep. and you know, if you want to have users on this system, it's got to be at least as easy as that. So uh, being both developers ourselves, we decided we want to solve this challenge and we created Portis, which is a tool for developers to kind of take all of that problem off the table. The users can create a wallet inside the browser without installing anything in their existing browser, no additional friction. And we use end-to-end encryption, which means that the, the user creates a wallet and encrypts it on the device, so that way he has absolute control over his private key. We're not custodians. All right, before we get into what Portis does, let's talk about what those usability challenges are, right? So um, pretty much almost any application that's actually built on a blockchain is hard to use. What are some of the obstacles that you see as the the most challenging? Yeah, so a lot of the obstacles can be solved with good user experience, but the two, what we see as the two inherent issues that 
in, in blockchain because of how it's architectured is the private key management and uh, network fees. Mm -hmm. These are two things that are, you don't see in Web2 and those are the challenges, challenges that we're aiming to solve. So the private key management, that's the end-to-end -end encryption. We see that as a good starting point for a user. Now, as you gain more and more value inside your wallet, which is like your identity in a, in a sense, then we can start thinking about adding additional layers and more and more layers of how you protect that. But we feel like that's an, a good you know, balance between the usability and the security that you want to have. And which is easy for users and the network fees. We also have an interesting uh, solution for that that we're doing, which is uh, well, we'll get to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so as this continues to evolve as an industry, do you think that the usability gets solved just over time, or do you think that it has to be an intentional effort from companies, you know, like you guys, to um, to, to really kind of drive that that improvement in user experience? No, the, definitely the latter. We, it's not going to happen by itself. That there are, there are challenges there, the, the the two I mentioned, but others as well, and there will have to be an effort by the companies to solve that. You know, at the end, the final result should be that it's you know users don't really care about blockchain, and they shouldn't care about about it either. It's like, you know, people care about the value that your product delivers to them. They don't care how you do it. You know, you're using. The Web2 applications, you don't care about TCP IP and the underlying things. You care that you can send a cute picture of a kid into your friend and memes and stuff. And that's the value you get. You don't really care how it works. And I remember when I was preaching about Ethereum to everybody I knew back then, I used to say that like the problem, the hard problem about Bitcoin is that it's very hard to explain to people. And with Ethereum, hopefully you wouldn't have to because, you know, you kind of abstract that away for the user. And I definitely agree that people don't care about the underlying technology, right? They just care about what they're able to accomplish. Like, can you solve my problem or not, right? Is the way I think about it. Um, it feels like uh, the people who use something built on MongoDB or an Excel spreadsheet or anything else, they're not being told what the underlying tech is. Is this something that maybe the developer community is just focused on the technology because that's where... They spend most of their time, and, and we don't yet have kind of the people who are product or marketing focused. Uh, or do you think it's more pervasive than that? Meaning that um, it's not just the the technologists uh, and the engineers that are focused on the technology. It's actually the marketers, the business people, the product people. Like the entire industry is too focused on the technology. I think we don't have enough marketing people and product people and people who will take this to the to the next level. And it's funny, you saw a similar situation both in the early days of the internet when it was very hard to use because the people in this system, in this ecosystem were very technical people. You also saw it in places like even gaming in the 80s. You know, when, uh, when you used to play Super Nintendo, you had games and, well, not Super Nintendo, even the regular Nintendo. You had a problem that games were very, very hard. There's a couple I can mention, like Contra and Battletoads or whatever. They were really hard to play because the people who built them were, you know, gamers who played these games day and night, and they were kind of, you know, blind to what the people, the average person, will be able to accomplish. And you sometimes see that in in this ecosystem as well. The people who are building this stuff, they're very tech savvy. They they they're also very motivated because. They have this belief that this is something that should happen. And while I agree with that, you can't expect your users to be that motivated and that you know, sophisticated. We need more product people, more marketing people, more people that user experience that 
can bring us to the same level of what we have in Web2. Like I mentioned before, there are a couple, two, what I believe, inherent issues in blockchain that you can't ignore, which is the private key management and the network fees. Those are things inherent in how blockchain works. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. You got to have your private keys. We're very, we were very, it was very important to us that we are not custodians of private keys. There are some solutions that go that path. We feel that's kind of like taking a shortcut. But you're, you know, if someone build the next decentralized Facebook, what good does it help if you have someone in the middle who's like, you know, the, the, the Zuckerberg who's holding everybody's private keys? Kind of defeats the purpose, not to mention the liability. And so what is Portis? What are you guys actually building? Yep. So our goal is to make sure developers don't need to, you know, worry about this whole issue of onboarding the user and letting them use your dApp. You have enough on your plate. You're writing the smart contract. You're worried about the user flow inside your application. There should be a solution for the, for developers. Just like if you need payments, you're using Stripe. You use the messaging. You're using Twilio. Then Portis solves the whole problem of the private key management, signing transaction, getting more crypto into your wallet, and a host of a lot of other stuff that users have to do when they're using a decentralized application. So we give the developers an SDK. It's, you know, it's standard Web3. We're supporting other blockchains as well. We recently added support for EOS, and we're, we're adding uh, Aeon, and we have a lot of other EVM-compatible blockchains, uh, simply because we want to make sure that any developer on any ecosystem can use, you know, can solve that challenge, but also for our users. They don't care, <laughs> just as much as they don't care about blockchain, they don't care which blockchain, you know, mm-hmm. it's the same. This is Mongo, like you said, this is SQL. It should work the same for both. So we give the developers this SDK, they integrate it. It's, it's the standard way that they, if they use MetaMask, it's the same code. They don't have to change anything, but now their users don't have to install anything, don't have to understand complicated terms, just use an email and a password. They encrypt the wallet on their side, and now they're in control and they can access it from any device they want and on their existing browser. Mm-hmm. And so as you're thinking about this, um, it sounds similar to like a Facebook Connect, right? Facebook basically has a single button that you can press anywhere on you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of websites around the world, ask you for a username and password, and then you're permissioned in to use that site under uh, the account that you have at Facebook. With this, maybe there's not the account back at the centralized entity, right, like Facebook, but it's very similar in that I can go to a whole number of different applications and rather than using private keys or or, uh, different various levels of um, uh, cryptography, I can actually just use my email and password to then get permission in to use the application. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate, but there is a private key behind the scene. We just don't want to bother the user with that. If you want to go inside your wallet, you can export your private key if you're that kind of user, and we're not boxing anyone in. You can export your wallet, go to whatever other wallet you want, and import your mnemonic phrase, private key, whatever you want inside. But yeah, as you mentioned, as opposed to something like Facebook Connect, we don't hold anybody's private keys. I, uh, um, a good equivalent is LastPass or 1Password, if you're familiar with them, mm-hmm. which is the same concept. They Recently, LastPass was approached by the authorities in the US and they told them they wanted to get someone who was using LastPass and they asked for their passwords. And LastPass were just like, guys, we can't. We literally can't. And, and by the way, we have the same challenge when a user approaches us and say, look, I forgot my password. I never wrote down my recovery phrase. 
help me. And we're like, sorry, we can't. Now we want, we're looking to solve that. We're adding social recovery and other means that will let the user, you know, find a way to solve the problem if they lose their private key and also smart contract wallets, which is, but these are things that we want to, you know, the user has to progressively move into that because okay. when they're just starting off, when this is the first application they ever see, they, they don't have, they're not invested so much. So it has to be just email, password, boom, that works, but you have your private key, it's yours. I'm not holding it for you. We don't want that. It's a liability and it goes against the whole ethos of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. and, and so as you're doing this, keep with the kind of last pass or, or one password. Um, Walk me through, not from the user side, but from the developer side. What is a developer required to do in order to, on, you know, use this, uh, use Portis, um, and then what's the benefit to them? Is it just simply a, a much easier user experience? Well, it's a much easier user experience, but it's it's not just on the level of okay, you have a prettier button or anything like that. Uh, you're removing the need for a user and. In terms of what it takes to integrate, by the way, it's very simple. It's just like two lines of code. Since, like, for instance, in Ethereum, we're a standard Web3 provider. So if you have MetaMask working, just import us and it works the same. So trying it out shouldn't take you more than a couple of minutes. Now, in terms of what you give to your users, so we mentioned they don't have to install anything. It works on their existing browser and they can access it from everywhere. But the other challenge that I mentioned is the network fees is which is a very alien experience like you're walking to a website they're not saying oh you got to pay for my aws fees or my hosting fees that doesn't exist now in blockchain you got to have that and when you're talking about something like bitcoin that's not that much of a challenge because if you're updating the state of the, the blockchain and you have to pay network fees in bitcoin that means you already have bitcoin so paying a little bit extra okay no worries but with ethereum a lot of the use cases that we're seeing is the user comes into a dapp they're getting maybe some weird DAP tokens that give them like reputation in that system or whatever, but they don't have ether. They can't pay the network yet, but they wanna update the global you know blockchain state. So that's a big challenge for them. Like now you're telling me I have to go to an exchange, do KYC, do all the things, and only then I can like vote for something. I'm not gonna do that. How do you handle the KYC AML? If I sign up, right, mm -hmm. uh, and I have a Portis wallet, um, I have my email and my password to basically authorize or, or uh, confirm that it's me. Am I KYC and AML'd at uh, the Portis level? And then every time I go somewhere, that KYC and AML goes with me? Um, or is there no KYC AML done and each individual service is required to KYC and AML me? Well, we KYC and AML you through wire when you want to buy something. Okay. So, and we're not focused on the people who want to buy, you know, $100,000 to speculate and to invest. We're focused on the average user who wants just to, you know, use an application. So the KYC is very low, the bar. Uh, we allow you to buy up to $40 a day through wire with a debit card. And the uh, KYC is just your email and phone number. That's it. Like, you know, your, your credit card details and address. But there's no taking a picture with a passport or anything like that because you're not buying that many. At that much, sorry. And if you want to buy more, you can do it through ACH, and then you just log in into your bank account using Played, which is just like what you yep. do in Venmo, and then you can buy up to twenty five hundred a day. Mm -hmm. But the KYC, but the KYC is an interesting bit. We do allow you to share it, but that ties into how we tackle the network fees challenge. Mm -hmm. And so when we started off, you know there weren't that many DApps out there so what we did is we gave each new user just one dollar for free we asked them to you know verify their phone number with a pin code 
and we give them one dollar for free. Now we had to block off some some countries because it was abused, but in the U.S. and Europe it worked well. It wasn't scalable. It was just so people can have a little bit of gas in their tank so they can take this car on a test drive and see how it feels to use a dab. We were trying to show how easy it can be, but this was still a problem. Giving everybody one dollar for free, people just took that one dollar sometimes and just you know moved it into a different wallet and said thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't want that wasn't our goal. So uh, recently, the guys at Tabuki, it's uh, it's a, another company that um, they release something called the gas station network. Now, the gas station network is something that was, you know, it was released after a long time of discussions in the community. There's the meta cartel community, and it deals with meta transactions, which is letting someone else pay for the gas fees of your transaction. So you sign a transaction with your private key, it's you, nobody can tamper with that, and then you send it to someone else who, who you know, tax on the, the gas and sends that to the network. So this whole architecture that they created is very interesting, it ha- has a lot of game theory in it. Basically what it does, it lets us tell the DAP, hey, you can sponsor your user's gas fees. Now that sounds great, but you mentioned the reputation before, the KYC. So think of it like a collect call. When you, do, you, when, you called, uh, when you call someone in a collect call, how, how do they know they want to accept the charges? Well, they recognize their, your voice. They know what reputation you have with them. Mm-hmm. So they say, okay, I'll pay for that. So we need something similar. So we you know, piggyback on the KYC and AML that we already do for users when they buy or through other means, if it's the email verification they did or phone verification just for, you know, when not necessarily if they want to buy, just if they want to do that KYC, so the DAP can say, okay, we trust you, we'll sponsor your gas fees. Mm-hmm. So if the user agrees to, he will then share his reputation with the DAP, the DAP will say, okay, I'll pay, I'll, collect, I'll accept the charges, and they'll pay your fees. and then there's no friction. Then you're just, you're coming to a DAP on your browser, you don't have to install anything, the, the DAP is paying your network fees, so you can just start using it right away. Mm-hmm. And, and so as you're doing this, um, I guess, one of my questions is the user experience component is uh, really compelling, right? Uh, so there's less friction for me. The developer use case is definitely compelling in that um, there is a more efficient way to get people to onboard, right? There's less uh, friction there. Um, and also it offloads some of the uh, risk and complexity with managing who my users are, how, what's their credentials, all that kind of stuff. All of that said, there's added risk in that you now are um, adding a level of uh, complexity, right? There's another layer or more software that's involved. Uh, so the user experience gets better because you kind of build this on top of um, you know, the digital wallet, et cetera. How concerned are you about security and, and some of the regulatory components that I think other companies um, you know, really kind of, I don't, I don't want to say they fear, but uh, it touches on? Do you see that as part uh, of the business and things you have to pay attention to, or is that kind of um, outside of what you guys are doing? Well, security is a concern from day one. That's mm-hmm. like we're always trying to make sure that we're not comp- we're not you know compromising the security for the sake of usability. But we also think that you don't have to compromise usability. You can find the right balance. Um, in terms of regulation, well, thankfully our life are a bit easier just because of the fact that we don't hold any private keys. Mm-hmm. We're not the custodians of money. We're not holding the private keys, so we're not custodians. We're not dealing. We're not. Act, we don't have access to the users, you know, funds. 
So in a sense, regulation-wise, that's easier. We have stuff like GDPR and things like that, but that, that also applies to non-crypto mm-hmm. challenges. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm assuming it helps that you're not based in the U.S. either. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if it does, but yeah. uh, Israel also has its own various regulations for stuff. And, yeah. Uh, what, what, what is the, uh, tell me more about the Israeli uh, regulatory environment. Good, bad? Overall, I think it's good. There, okay. there, I, I think it, it's very similar to the U.S. in some regards. In terms of the tax for, for any holdings you have, it's pretty much the same. Um, it's, it's having, I, I think we have the same approach as the U.S., which is, you know, we can't just let everybody do whatever they want, but we don't want to stifle it because we, we don't want to get left behind by other countries which might be a little bit more lenient. Mm-hmm. So. And, and it seems to me, I think when I was in Israel last, uh, there was a lot of talk of like uh, trying to become crypto nation, right? Was I think that the, the language that was being used, um, how's the progress towards crypto nation coming? Um, I, well, I, I hope it's good. I, I mean, you have a lot of very strong cryptographic capabilities in Israel. And that obviously ties in very well with uh, cryptocurrency because that's the underlying concept, which is, you know, we don't have to trust anybody. We trust that the math works. And there's a lot of great projects that came out of Israel. And um, yeah, Tabuki, which I mentioned, the guest uh, station, that's an Israeli team as well. Really? Yeah. What, uh, what's one or two other projects in Israel that, uh, that you're super excited about? Well, there's Bancor, which everybody knows. Um, it's a pretty popular one. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of any others that come to mind right now. Um, can't recall the moment. But, okay, but that's fine. Yeah. Um, all right, and then so where do we go from here, right? From user experience standpoint, um, once you've got this um, kind of you know one password or, or last pass uh, type experience with Portis, um, what are kind of the next hurdles that need to be knocked down by whether it's you guys or other teams uh, to really get the user experience to be um, at parity with uh, kind of the non-crypto world? So moving forward, we do want to make sure the user can progress into. You know, I mentioned before that you don't want to put your $100,000 on it, but we still want to enable that. So we're talking with hardware wallet providers to do an integration. So your hardware wallet is like your, you know, wallet, your bank safe, but you have your checking account, but you can easily move around between them. So you can hook up your, your uh, hardware wallet and now your portis can take a little bit out of it every time you want, but it has a restriction up to a certain amount mm-hmm. per day, month, whatever you feel comfortable with. So, and that also kind of is related to the whole recovery issue. You know, it's kind of weird that this is the, the, the cutting edge of technology, but we're telling people you got to write something on a piece of paper and not lose it. You know, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to explain to people. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous in a way, yeah. And it, it, it's, it's a very big challenge to private key management because even for IT professionals, private key management was a difficult problem up until blockchain hit the scene. But now we're saying, no, it's not the IT professional has to do it. It's the average person on the street. It's your grandma. Now she has to know how to manage her private key. And that's a challenge. That's, that's a big challenge. Um, other than that, I think we're going to see, you know, blockchain by its nature is very interoperable. So we're seeing a lot of interesting things happening and, you know, it's even in a way hard to predict because sometimes things that might sound ridiculous now will make a lot of sense later on. Uh, one of the dApps using us called uh, Ethereum, uh, which is a, a game. It's like Magic the Gathering, but on the blockchain. 
So they have a feature where you can take a CryptoKitty if you have it and forge it with another card and create like a CryptoKitty dragon or something like that. So that's something you couldn't do before. You can't take one asset from one game. You can't take something from a game on PlayStation and one from Xbox and kind of have mm-hmm. them talk to each other. With blockchain, you can. And, you know, that's part of the value that people sometimes miss out on. You know, people sometimes focus, oh, it's anonymized or that. But the interoperability, for instance, that's really important. I don't think anonymization is that important in my eyes. I mean, the value of other stuff, I think, is higher. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, Before I finish up, I always do a uh, rapid-fire set of questions. Um, What do you think is the most important company in crypto? I can't say Portis, obviously. Uh, you cannot say Portis. That is not allowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, the most important company in crypto right now. I need to think about that. Um, give me a second. No, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough question. I only ask really tough, hard questions on this podcast, obviously. No, because I'm thinking like which... Part of the, I'm not even thinking of a specific company. I'm thinking like, what's the thing we want to advance the most right now? Um, I, I want. I think Prismatic Labs is, is a very important company. Oh, Prismatic Labs. I, yeah. I talked with them. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, Ethereum 2.0. Yeah, right? exactly. The, the what is it, layer two scaling solution for Ethereum. Exactly, because you know scalability is a big concern now. In what we're saying a lot is that we should also worry about usability because if you don't have a lot of users then you know scalability won't be a problem sadly like we're creating we're building up the ground for nothing because if there's not going to be a million users then yeah Mm -hmm. great we're scalable but nobody's here but it is something that needs to be solved and the guys at prismatic labs are doing great a great uh, a great job Mm -hmm. it makes sense they uh, they definitely are are taking a big swing right yeah um what uh what's the one regulation that you would change or improve if you could I wish people could, you know, buy crypto in a you know more easily. More easily? Yeah, that like they wouldn't the, the the KYC wouldn't be as hard. Mm-hmm. And I get why it has to be in a way, in a sense, because there is room for doing nefarious stuff if mm-hmm. it isn't. I don't know, but I wish there was some way to make it easier. That's fair. Um, what is your most controversial thought in crypto? Like, what do you believe that a very high majority of other people would disagree with you on? Hmm. He's deep in thought, which means this is a great question as well. That's a, that's all. Yeah, two, I'm two for three on the rapid fire. Yeah. Uh, wow, an unpopular opinion. Okay, I don't know. Yeah, I guess that can be depending on which circles. But, you know, people are sometimes uh, kind of knocking various blockchains. Like, for instance, I mentioned EOS. And trust me, I'm well aware of the fact that it's 21 nodes. And the decentralization there is not really decentralized. I'm aware of that. But, you know, when you're talking about the world of uh, a blockchain, it's always like a blanket which you're moving, you're pulling in different directions. If you want to have really it's high, it's trade-offs, exactly. Yep. And 
there's room for those blockchains as well for specific reasons. It's like when you have people who are just, oh, Java is the best language or C is the best language. No, it depending, it's like different tools for different missions. Now, you have to be aware of the fact that it's not really as decentralized as Bitcoin, of course, as Ethereum or as other blockchains, but it has its values for specific use cases. If you're talking about gaming, for instance, sometimes you want it to be super fast and cheap just because you can stop every once in a while and make sure it's on a more decentralized blockchain. And so, you know, you shouldn't automatically say, oh, these blockchains, you just, they're, they're, they're not worth anything. They have, they, they have their own use cases, but, you know, not for, not for what Ethereum does or Bitcoin does. What's the most important book you've ever read? Um, I really like the book. Like, I read tons of uh, um, Discworld books. I really love the whole series. It's, it's great. But I think, like, a great book is... Uh, surely you're kidding, Mr. Feynman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that one? Mm-hmm. I've never read it, but, I, but I've heard of it, yes. It's just like the thought, the thought process of that guy. He was like the Albert Einstein of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. He also won a Nobel Prize. And he has just like a really interesting way of looking at stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot so, of mental models and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So it's really nice. What, um, so I asked one non-crypto related question, and then you get to ask me a question to, to, uh, to end this. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about aliens? you think they're real? Wow. Uh, I find it hard to believe that we were the only sentient life out there, especially since science is showing more and more how easily it is for some sort of life to take place. Although we're very unique, like where the Earth is in position to the sun and all that. I just think like... Do you think it's like life on Mars? No, I don't think... There might have been life on Mars at some point on a very like, you know, amoeba level. I, I wouldn't rule that out. But I think that we're not going to, the chance that we'll see another sentient being, I always used to say that until we are able to move around the, the galaxy really, really quickly, we're not going to see anyone because they're all moving on these super highways and we're just stranded in some God knows where. And the chances that they'll just run into us are very low. But if we start moving around, then the chances that we intersect with someone grow. So until we... You know, talk. we need to talk to Elon, to Elon Musk to, you know, get working <laughs> speed on it that. up, man. Speed it's it taking up, man. so long. Where's the faster than light speed? <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it, it always amazes me. There's many countries, or many countries, uh, many planets where uh, they believe that uh, we may either have the technology or be getting close to having the technology um, that could go, right, in terms of, of, uh, of distance. Um, but humans could not survive the trip because it literally would take so long to get there yeah. that we would die before we got there. Yeah. Uh, right? So if you think you train like a you know, 25-year-old, it would take 40, 50, 60, 70 years to get there with space. Well, sometimes they're talking about like, you know, freezing people along the way and stuff like that. And there's a, <laughs> there was a, a, an animated TV show uh, when I was a kid, the I remember... Jetsons? What? The no, Jetsons? No, 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 not the Jetsons. <laughs> the Jetsons are supposed to be taking place close to now, isn't it? Like, what, what is the Jetsons taking place in? I don't know, but probably around now. Yeah, I think it's around now. Uh, it's not really the same. But, no, it was a, a different TV show where they flew out to a planet to do something, and they froze everybody and everything. But by the, it took them, like, let's say, 200 years together. Wow. In those 200 years... I made a show, but in those 200 years, the technology advanced so quickly that... When they got there, other spaceships already arrived. 
and populate it. So they got there and they were like, yeah, good thing you made it. We're already here. We already have everything. Let us... And it's kind of like it was, a, it was an educational show. It was a very old show. There was, there's this history show where they teach you about history mm-hmm. with a guy with a beard. You know, a, a, a story about life, something called. So it was the same company. Yeah. And it was just like there. That's a really interesting thought, though. Like this idea that the technology could actually be so outdated that yeah. you'd be the last one there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leave first and arrive last. In the U.S., we just call that slow. <laughs> what, uh, what one question you have for me to finish this up? Uh, well, what do you think is the most interesting project right now in the space? Bitcoin. Uh, why? If it's I can, if I can follow up on that question, it's the, it's the most important, right? In the sense that uh, Bitcoin stands to disrupt the very foundation of money, economics, global power, etc. right? And, and so when you look at it from that lens of what is likely to be the most disruptive, uh, coupled with it probably being one of the simplest, right? To me, that's just it's really interesting, it's really important. Uh, and it's just really powerful, right? And so, so I always say that, and I think that that's... Um, it's an easy answer, right? So a lot of people are like, "Oh, come on!" Like, you know, what, what do you mean? But but I mean it because uh, I think that a lot of times when folks talk about crypto, it's like Bitcoin's too simple. It's too easy, right? Like, oh, we all know about Bitcoin. Like, what else? And you know, to me, that just shows that we are underestimating the potential it has and, and the power it has. Um, so it'll be kind of interesting to watch this play out over the next, you know, 20, 25 years. No, I, I agree. Sometimes it's something that just does one simple thing. It's much better than, you know, trying to get everything inside. But let's say, you know, there are a couple of Bitcoin equivalents out there, which sometimes even improve on some of the problems of Bitcoin. You think that Bitcoin right now is just has that network effect and that's just it's like... network effect. It is brand awareness. It is uh, the, um, the security, the... Uh, regulatory uh, acceptance, right? So it's not a security, it's a commodity. Um, It's got the institutional uh, adoption or uh, what appears to be demand for adoption, right? It just has all of these components. It's got infrastructure, right? That a lot of these other things don't yet uh, support. Um, It's just got a lot of things that uh, other cryptocurrencies or even competitors don't have uh, that I think give it a significant advantage. Can I follow up on the question? Of course. So if I had a chance to rephrase my first question, besides Bitcoin, <laughs> what do you think is the most important project? Or interesting. It doesn't have to be important necessarily, but like yeah. really like... So I'll talk about a company. Um, many people have heard me talk about it. Uh, it's called Figure. We're an investor in the business. Uh, Mike Cagney, who formerly founded SoFi, is building um, a, uh, a business to uh, digitize legacy assets. Uh, he started with mortgages and rever- reverse mortgages. He essentially takes, if you think of a mortgage, there's um, a borrower and a lender. You've got, you know, it's called five to seven middlemen, seven to eight percent fees. He wrote software and basically automates away the middlemen. Um, and he can compress those fees because he owns the whole stack, you know, in the transaction uh, down to about five percent. Um, and then what he's able to do is you can actually go online and apply for a mortgage. Uh, within five minutes, he tells me whether you're going to get it or not. And within five days, he funds it. And so it's really interesting because what this does is, again, he's digitizing 
a legacy asset. He's creating more efficiencies. He's bringing the cost down. But the best part is um, he actually uh, wrote a white paper with Morningstar. And Morningstar talked about how these types of bonds are going to get higher ratings. Right? So the actual debt will be rated higher because it is on a blockchain. It is transparent. It is secure. It is uh, more compliant. You know, all these things that um, I think are really interesting. And so for me, everyone always talks about, you know, do you want something that's cheaper or faster? Right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's trade-offs. Yeah. In this case, you're talking about something that's cheaper, it's more efficient, and it gets a higher rating. Right, you kind of get multiple in, um, positive impact, uh, and so when you get that, I think you can just build a really, really big company. Um, and, uh, and he's done a great job so far um, in terms of going from zero to you know a lot of money in revenue, and I think that he'll continue to do that. That's interesting. And it runs on Ethereum or a different blockchain? Uh, it's a blockchain called Providence, which uh, which they built. Uh, they built their own blockchain. They did. That's always the kind of stuff that I find kind of problematic because. Will you have enough of a network size to make it, you know... Uh, well, he's working with, he's working with uh, financial service organizations, right? So they're serving... Because remember, in that world, the, asset, the advantages of a public blockchain are not necessarily needed in the legacy system, right? A lot of these banks, they already work with each other, right? So, so they, they want to have like their own consortium blockchain. I think that's generally, you know, in a directional way, uh, correct? I, I don't want to speak for them because I don't quite know exactly how they think about it, but but what I would just say is um, in many cases, uh, I think that JP Morgan actually is another good example. Uh, I think a lot of these folks are going to start with these private blockchains or semi-private blockchains, and they're going to move to public ones over time. Or right? they're just going to communicate with each other. You know, They're going to work yeah. with the private, and sometimes you got to tap into the public because you're talking to another private. Yep. And sort of him. Yeah. And a- absolutely. So, you know, and again, I don't know how, exactly how it's going to play out. Um, but I, I do think that that's probably the, the project or company that, um, you know, is the most interesting. Cool. So, uh, listen, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's been a long week for everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, what you guys are doing is pretty cool. And anytime that we can start to uh, reduce the friction and user experience for people in, uh, in Bitcoin, crypto, and uh, the blockchain ecosystem, uh, it's a positive thing. So, uh, I'll be cheering you on. And let's, uh, let's do this again in the future as, as you guys make progress. I'd be happy to. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.